Well, if you have not figured it out, Brother Andy's not here this morning. Uh, so we will not be in Matthew 24. I got a message from Andy yesterday morning. He said, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to preach tomorrow. Start getting ready. Then by the afternoon, we got the call. He's like, I, I can't do it. Uh, I won't be able to finish, finish a sermon without a coughing fit. So um, <clears throat> scripture says, be prepared in season and out of season. That truth is being, was laid before me yesterday. So here we are this morning. Uh, we will be in Psalm 14 this morning, uh, verses 1 through 3. Um, it has been a, uh, I don't know. My head's been in a whirlwind for about the past 24 hours, and uh, it's uh, praise be to God that he is sufficient. So, Psalm 14, read along with me. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They are abominable. Deed. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Join me in a word of prayer. Father, Lord, as we come before your mighty throne, Lord, may your word, may your word be open to us that we may understand it. Uh, may your truth be proclaimed. Father, Lord, um, I pray as I, as I speak for the next few moments that you would move me out of the way and that you would speak your truth through me. And if anything that I say is not truth of you, that it may fall on death, deaf ears. Father, Lord, we just ask that in the next few moments, that you be our teacher and that you be our guide. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is a, uh, yeah, one of the things I never understood going into ministry was that at a moment's notice, you might be called upon to fill in the pulpit. Um, um, when Brandon had his accident, it was a Friday, and I found out on a Friday, which gave me a couple of days. And um, I had a, a good friend of mine that had told me, he said, always have a couple of sermons in your back pocket. Always be ready, and which I did. I had a couple of sermons in my back pocket. Um, and got the message yesterday, and uh, I, was, uh, I was in the middle of a workout, and I couldn't quite read the text message. I didn't have my glasses on. And I kind of got the gist of it and asked Angela, she was on the computer, I was like, hey, can you pull up a folder and see, and I specifically asked for sermon in one spot. Well, I realized my back pocket's not as full as it once was. So this is a bit of a warning that maybe I should take some time and, you know, have a few of them ready to go. But uh, this um, what was one that I, I was asked to preach uh, a couple of years ago. Um, that a, a youth pastor said, hey, we're in this passage, and he throws it at me. It was actually Romans 3, which is a direct quote, which Paul directly quotes this passage. But uh, so, um, one thing in yesterday, it's, it's your, your mind becomes a, a whirlwind of thoughts, and like, how do I take this and, 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 and kind of make it a little more... Uh, 
I hate to use the word relevant, but you know, something that we can begin to unpack and understand um, as opposed to speaking to a, a group of, of youth that had a scavenger hunt that night, which we're not doing a scavenger hunt. But um, I read an account yesterday that was very, very interesting to me. And, and, and I've been up here enough that y'all have realized that I love history. And I'm always pulling some history into a sermon. So I, I read this account yesterday. And it's, um, it's in, the, in the 19th century, an English cricket star, C.T. Studd, Charles Thomas Studd, left fame and fortune to follow Christ in the mission field. Now, Studd, along with the two of his brothers, had achieved English cricket. They were, they were achieved fame as English cricket players. They were some of the best English cricket players in the nation. Now, Charles, he had grown up in the church. And he's even quoted the saying that um, there wasn't a time that he didn't know, that he didn't believe there was a, there was a God, or that he didn't re- know that Jesus Christ had died for the sins of the world. But at this point in his life, he had not come to saving faith. And his father, who was a Christian at the time, had um, he was reading the paper and saw that the American evangelist D.L. Moody was coming into town. And his father's famously quoted, or he said to his sons, he said, there must be something about this man or the papers would not vilify him as they do. I'm going to go hear this American speak. Now, Charles and his brothers were not real th- thrilled about this, their, his father's religiosity. He wanted to be all religious all of a sudden, but he went. And um, praise be the Lord, all three of the brothers were saved. Charles, growing up in the church, always knowing that there was a God, always knowing that Christ had died for the sins of the world, it wasn't until a pastor came in his home that he was confronted with the gospel. Was it the first time he'd heard it? Probably not. But for some reason, in that moment, his eyes were open to the truth of who God was. And he says, Then and there, joy and peace came into my soul. I knew then what it was to be born again. And the Bible, which had been so dry to me before, became everything. And after this conversion, one of Charles's brothers became deathly ill. They were still pursuing their career in cricket. And it began to make Charles reflect on his life and faith. You know, that just that seems to happen when we're confronted with, uh, with, with things like this. His brother is, is deathly ill, and you really begin to look at what are your priorities. But Charles, he said, What is all the fame and flattery worth when a man comes to face eternity? I know that cricket would not last. Honor would not last. Nothing in this world would last. But it is worthwhile to pursue things of a world that is to come. If Jesus Christ is God and died for me, there is no sacrifice that can be too great for me to make for him. So at four, Charles was accepted a call as a missionary in Hudson Taylor's China Inland Mission. Charles was considered the best cricket player to have ever played the game. Let's pause on that for a moment. 
let's say LeBron James at the age of 24 walked away from basketball. How would that be perceived in our society? Or if you follow football, Patrick Mahomes just dropped everything and walked away. Be crazy, right? They are the best at what they do, yet they're walking away. I mean, it's just astonished the people in England. And when asked about it, Charles said this, God's real people have always been called fanatics. So Charles left. In 1906, after 15 years in China and six years in India, he was forced back to England with a respiratory condition. He had fallen ill and needed to go back to England to recover. Uh, One day he saw a sign. It was a poster. It declared, cannibals want missionaries. It was a call for missionaries to Africa. And as Charles thought about it, he was very bothered by the fact that traders... Trophy hunters and scientists had willingly ventured into Africa's interior, but not missionaries with the gospel of Christ. Despite doctor's warnings and being over 50 years of old, he went to Africa. And he said, God has called me. I will go. I will blaze a trail, though my grave may only become a stepping stone for younger men may follow He spent the rest of his life there, and he died in the Congo in 1931 at the age of 70. And and I I tell you that story, and and it kind of left me with this question. What was it that caused this man to forgo a path that seemed so obvious to seek after the life that he did? It just seemed so obvious. The greatest cricket player ever is what he was called. The greatest ever, the fame and the fortune. What was it that caused this man to walk away? I have a question for all of you. What are you seeking? What are you seeking out? Several decades back, the the seeker-sensitive movement or the church growth movement was all the rage within the American church. Many of you probably heard about it. We, We discussed it this morning in Sunday school. As that too was kind of tossed on my plate, that um, I just turned into a nice uh, um, current events discussion this morning. Um, but this church growth movement, which kind of became the seeker-sensitive movement, it was very popular within the American church. Now, it had two key attributes to the church growth movement. First was a passion for the Great Commission, which I'm not going to expound on that too much, but kind of think about that, a passion for the Great Commission. See if that lines up. And a willingness to apply research to attracting members, including quantitative methods. So quantitative methods, we discussed this a little bit in Sunday school. It's taking data, research analysis. What is it that we can get to attract people within the walls of the church? What can we do to bring them in? Any research, anything is open as long as it works to grow the numbers of the church. This all came about in the 1960s. So what was the outcome of this movement? What was the outcome? Um, I think when I asked the question in Sunday school, Robbie had the best answer. A pastor on a zip line zipping down to the pulpit. What have we gotten? 
Church services look more like rock concerts than an actual church service. The motivational speaker has replaced the pastor expositing scripture from the pulpit. And a drastic decline in the number of churches in our country. There are more doors of churches closing every day. And these mega churches are propped up that that have really embraced this. If you follow what is happening within the SBC, and I pray that you are, I pray that you're paying attention. You should really be paying attention. Critical race theory, intersectionality. Do you know what those are? Those are research and quantitative methods. That's all they are. This has been perpetuating for 50, 60 years now. It's just showing its ugly head now that we can really see it. It's probably been there much, much longer, but it's just now that we're really beginning to see it. And why have these things happened within the church? It's because when we take and we form our theology on what the carnal or the depraved man is seeking, we find that it's going to be centered on that. It's going to be centered on man. It's going to be centered on self and not on God. And this has become the norm for us in churches today. Worshiping the creature and not the creator. What do I like about worship? What did I like about the sermon? What do I like about the lighting? What do I like about the carpet? What do I like about the decor? What do I like about the people greeting me? It's all about me and we've forgotten. It's not about us. It's about God. I heard an American missionary to Africa. He responded to this question. Um, They had had a very successful church planning Um, They had planted, I think, five churches. It was very successful within the area. And one of the people in our group asked him, what method do you use? And he kind of had a puzzled look on his face. like, method? We use the book of Acts, Scripture. We pray. We ask the Lord to open doors. When someone steps up feeling... That, that, that feels the Lord calling them to a certain field and, and the opportunity has been open, we plant a church. We have no method. We have no plan. We never set out to plant five churches, open an orphanage, open a university. That was never our plan. Our plan was to walk in obedience to how God, the opportunities God was going to give us. And it made me realize how little we trust the scriptures in matters of the church and we seek after, after other avenues to create what we perceive as success. We want to be successful, but we don't want to trust the scriptures. I think of the prophet Jeremiah. If you know anything about the prophet Jeremiah, not one person repented that he preached to. Not one. Yet, we read about him in scripture. He was faithful what God had called him to do. He was faithful. So the question is, what are we pursuing? We live in a day and age that has become obsessed with self. To take a look at social media. You can become wealthy and famous as an influencer. I didn't know anything about this. 
it's true. Um, with Angela working in a high school, I learned about things like this. You can become famous by doing what? Making a little video about yourself. I, I don't even know. But this is a society we've become. These are the things that we value. And we like to think that we are good and that we have some form of righteousness in us. You know, that we're pretty good people. We're not like the other people. We, we compare ourselves to other people in the world around us. Uh, this is commonplace within the church. We like to compare ourselves to other churches, other denominations. It's just how we're wired. It's what we do. And it's in our human nature that we are attempting to view ourselves as righteous, all along forgetting what the Bible teaches us about our natural selves. <clears throat> so this morning, I go to the, the Psalm 14 to really step back and take a look at who are we really? What has God revealed of who we are? Now, a lot of you will recall this, uh, this psalm because Paul quotes it directly in Romans 3. Now, Pastor Andy, he will soon get back to his exposition of Romans. And we've taken quite a bit of a break from it. But when we think about the book of Romans, it is the most extensive teaching within one book that covers who we are, who God is, what Christ has done, and how to be saved, and how we are to live in a world as a new creation. What we see is Paul teaching the gospel of Christ, the good news. But in order for there to be good news, there must be bad news. And for the bad news, Paul goes straight to Psalm 14. We are lost. We are born corrupt. We are spiritually dead. So let's take a look at Psalm 14. The psalm begins with, The fool said in his heart, There is no God. Now the words, there is, that has been added by the translators, so the sentence could be read in English. If we were to read it word for word translation in Hebrew, it would read, the fool hath said in his heart, no God. We in our natural state say no to God and we say, I am God. No, I am God. And there's a couple of words in this passage and when we define them in their Hebrew meaning, kind of builds upon this truth and it, it, it solidifies this truth um, the phrase none are good in Hebrew is one word alak which means to be corrupt morally tainted so in our natural state we are morally corrupt you may ask but can't we seek God in our natural state no the Hebrew word for seek that we read in this passage darash which means to seek or ask specifically about worship. <clears throat> the, Psalms, the psalm tells us that none seek. None seek to worship God. None. So to answer the question, no, we can't. Apart from God, we are morally corrupt and incapable of worshiping God. And if we are honest with ourselves... Even as believers, we still see that part of us. We understand that, that that's who we are. Our desire is almost always on things that we want. 
Warren Wearsby writes on this passage. He says, This verse indicates that the whole man's inner being is controlled by sin. His mind, his heart, and his will. Measured by God's perfection, perfect righteousness, no human being is sinless. No sinner seeks after God. Therefore, God must seek the sinner. Man has gone astray and has become unprofitable to himself and to God. God must seek the sinner first. And this is referred to as effectual calling. Now, effectual calling, um, in a lot of Christian circles, they, they, they don't like this term, effectual calling. Um, but it's one of those that we can't, we can't deny. It is all throughout Scripture. Effectual calling, meaning it is God that first moves upon the sinner. It is God that saves. It puts all of salvation onto God. And we'll take some examples from the Old Testament and New Testament that affirm this truth. If we think about the calling of Abram, was Abram seeking out to follow God until confronted by God? No. Moses, what was Moses doing? He was tending sheep out in the wilderness. Gideon, one of my favorites, Gideon. He was hiding in the threshing floor from the Midianites who were attacking and raiding. And he's confronted by the angel of the Lord that says, Oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor, who's hiding. Was Gideon seeking after God? Not at all. In the New Testament, there's a parable of the lost sheep. In Luke 15, God goes to his sheep because they are lost and they don't even know that they're lost the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John 11 this account demonstrates this account demonstrates a deity of Christ and his power to raise Lazarus from the dead but it also demonstrates the raising of the spiritually dead to life Lazarus was dead he was unable to raise himself just as we are spiritually dead And if we were to go to the seeker-sensitive, people are seeking after God. If we were to apply this in Lazarus terms, it means Lazarus was dead, but he was looking for a doctor that could raise him. Logic. Let's think logically. Is that possible? No, it's not. Christ raised him from the dead. It is only God's work in us that allows us to be raised to life in Christ. Now, I don't want to forsake the, 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 our responsibility in this. God is the one that opens our eyes. Now, we are to respond to that. But make no mistake about it. Our salvation is firmly planted in God himself. It's just that when our eyes are open, there is only one response. Just like Lazarus, when he was raised from the dead, I, I guess ultimately he could have refused to come out, but could he? Could he really? Was there an option for him at that moment? No, there wasn't. Let's think about the conversion of Paul. Before Paul's conversion, he was Saul. He was seeking to destroy the Christian movement. He murdered and imprisoned the followers of Christ. But God interrupted his plans on the road to Damascus. Paul was not seeking after God, though he thought he was. He thought he was being obedient to God in his persecution. He was destroying this uprising. 
But when he encountered the risen Christ, he was changed. It was made into a new creation. The scriptures over and over teach us that there is no hope in self. Because of the depraved state of our heart and our mind and our will due to original sin. We are born in this corrupt state and there is no hope apart from Christ. Though in our society it's pretty common thought. Um, and I'm probably guilty of this myself at one point. That uh, the thought that I will get myself right and I will start living for God. Or I am much better than fill in the blank. But scripture says that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So how can we have hope? Where is our hope found? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to start in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It reads, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Those first three verses, everyone in this room has been in this state or are in this state currently. Everyone. Everyone's born into this state. Verse four, but God. It's probably one of the greatest phrases in all of scripture, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespassers, trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. God made us alive. It is God that raises us. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the gift of God not as a result of works so that no no one may boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with him. This is our hope. Why do we ever stray from the scriptures? Why? This truth. What can I do to be saved? Nothing. It's not reliant upon me. Because we are dead in our sins. We are completely unable to seek after God, seeking our own desires and destined to face the wrath of God. It's so funny when we think about the term we use, salvation. If you were to be asked, what are you saved from? 
Many people say hell. Well, yeah. No, actually, you are saved from God himself. You are saved from a holy and righteous God. God is saving you from himself. Because we are all destined to face God. We are all going to stand in front of God. But verse 4 says, but God, it is God who calls us, who saves us, who changes our hearts, allows us to rightly seek after him, intercedes for us all through Christ. We are his workmanship. This is our hope. If we are in Christ, we need to rest upon this truth. Pray for God to guide us. Seek him, worship him in all things that we do. Deny ourselves. Our depraved flesh. We need to deny it. Take up our cross and follow him. Pray for the Holy Spirit to convict us, to teach us, and continually grow us in, the light, in his likeness. As a church body, as a church, God has allowed us. I don't, I don't understand this, but he has allowed us to be part of his miraculous working and saving of the souls that he continually does every second of every day. He has called us to preach, to teach, and to live out the gospel. In our homes, we are to teach our children, teach our grandchildren who God is and what he has done for us through Christ. Men, be the spiritual leaders of your home. Be the spiritual leaders. If we don't step up and take the reins in educating our own children and allowing the government to be the sole educator... As Vodi Bakum says, don't be surprised when you allow Caesar to educate your kids that they come home as Romans. We must, we must stand firm in this and we must take this call to action and educate our families at home. Men, be the spiritual leaders. I'm not saying that everyone has to homeschool or everyone has to send their kids to private school, but you need to be aware of what they're learning in public school and you need to be prepared to stand up and teach them what is truth. We try to do this at church, but you think about it, we got a couple hours a week. I know Seth with the youth, he is teaching a curriculum that is truth, right? It's, it's biblical truth as opposed to what the world says. But we have limited time. We have limited time. We must seek this as a priority. In our lives, we must live out the glorious hope of a kingdom, the kingdom that is to come. Not striving after what the world defines as good or successful, glorifying him at all times. Now, if you were here today and you have no clue what I'm talking about and do not understand this hope my prayer is that God would open your eyes to his truth change your heart so that you may believe all that he has revealed to himself I can't lead you in some magic prayer or ask you a series of questions and slap you on the back because as a youth growing up I prayed the prayers I answered the questions. I raised my hand. I was baptized. But in looking back, there was a moment, a moment in reading God's word 
them eyes were opened. Then my eyes were opened. And the truth of what I was reading, it came to life. And I realized at the moment there was only one thing for me to do. Repent and follow him. No matter what it costs. No matter where he led. Ten years ago, if you'd have told me I'd be standing in the pulpit in Tarkington Prairie, I would have laughed at you. And wherever. I will follow him wherever. It is only through the work of the Holy Spirit that salvation may come. If you do not know this hope, Today can be the day of your salvation. Cry out to God. Repent of your sins and turn to him. God is faithful to save. The scriptures tell us, Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God begins the work of salvation. He sees it to the end. Cry out to him who is able to save. Cry out to Jesus. So what was it about Charles Studd that caused him to radically change? He encountered the living God. He had all the comforts of the world at his fingertips. He had fame, he had success, he had fortune, and he walked away. He walked away knowing that all of that would ultimately end up on the eternal trash heap of insignificance. None of it mattered. But seeking after his eternal king, that's what mattered. If you think about his story, doesn't it kind of remind you of Jesus calling the disciples to follow him? What we read, he says, follow me. What did they do? They dropped what they were doing and went. And they walked away. Charles said this, he said, Some wish to live within the sound of the church and the chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within the yard of hell. He didn't want to be comfortable sitting in the church. His desire was to serve God in the worst place, if that's where God called him. His desire was to seek after God. May the Lord give us eyes to see the eternal glories in serving him. And realize that Christian life is not about a social club called the church, but it's about being obedient to him and serving him. With all that we're seeing rising up within the church, within the SBC, all these things that are happening, you may ask the question, what is wrong with the American church today? What is wrong with it? I would have to say the majority who claim to be Christian have not encountered the living God and surrendered him as Lord. So when your eyes are opened, there is no other way to go. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you that you have revealed hard truths about who we are of our true nature. And Father Lord, it is only when we begin to accept the truth of who we are that we can rightly come before you with humility 
and repent of the sins that we have committed against you, a holy and righteous God. Father, Lord, for those of us in here that that have repented and followed you, may you continually reveal yourself to us and may you give us a deeper repentance that we may understand that who we rightly are in front of you than that we may esteem to you all the glory and honor you deserve. And Father, Lord, for those here that do not know you, Lord, I pray, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would begin a work in them. And Father, Lord, as you begin the work, may we as a church be a witness to your miraculous work. Father, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.